Welcome to Thrive in Design, a podcast about making money in beautiful interiors as it relates to product-based businesses in the interior design industry. Each week, we'll discuss innovative strategies on how to approach product development and design sales in a shifting market. I'm your host, Nicole Lachey-Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Thrive in Design podcast. Today, we have an amazing guest, and his name is Chris Stolpin. Chris is the former chief creative officer of Target North America, a division of Target. In this role, Chris led the design, product management, marketing, and project management teams, driving the company's innovation roadmap and the customer experience journey. Currently, Chris works closely with the architecture and design community, IIDA, and consults to many leading manufacturers. As a leader of design thinking initiatives, Chris completed studies at the Paris School of Architecture's D School. He also completed studies in innovation at the London Business School. His education has been the foundation of leading executive leadership teams and design thinking fundamentals. Chris is a member of thought leadership communities, including the Design Futures Council, IIDA Industry Roundtable, and Trend Union. Chris has even had the pleasure of designing ad campaigns for Barney's New York and Giorgio Armani. So I'm so excited to have you here today. Welcome to the show, Chris. Nicole, thank you so much for having me. This is a, a pleasure. I can't wait to um, have a chat with you. Yes. So I always like to start by getting some familiarity with my guests and how your career really started, right? So Tell me a little bit about that. How did your career in the interior design industry begin and what's been your path and how it has, has it evolved over the years? Well, I, I came from a family where you self-funded higher education. So it may sound a little funny, but um, I was in design to pay for my schooling. There, I grew up in Rochester, New York, and I was in a uh, a visual merchandising and display team for a large retailer in my hometown where um, that really was my my entry into into store design. So um, if you can imagine taking these small window spaces and merchandising and and how to uh, really elevate product and storytelling within a confined space was really the way I, I got into design so I could pay to go to school. At that time, I was going to um, the National Technical Institute for the Deaf so I could get a degree in interpreting for the hearing impaired just because uh, I thought it would be very, very interesting. It, it just always fascinated, fascinated me. And I was one of 10 hearing people in an all deaf university. Wow. Uh, learning sign. So the, the bonus from that was I really got to be an outsider in a world where I did not speak the language. And I had to really start to hone my observation skills and, and how to communicate differently, which has had a profound effect on, on my design career. When I moved to New York, I continued down the path of visual merchandising and display and found myself working at uh, my very first design firm, which was called Walker Group. And Walker Group was the third largest design firm in the world at that point, because um, there used to be this thing in America called malls. Mm -hmm. 
And, <laughs> <laughs> and they were like the kings of mall design and, and store designs. I started there as, as a librarian. And from there, I went to HLW Architects, which I have to tell you, it was so wild to me what they did in the late 80s. You worked a four-day work week, Monday through Thursday. Bring it back, bring it back. <laughs> Imagine, right? And then you had Fridays to yourself. And so I started a, a little cottage industry, um, becoming a resource specialist for small and up-and-coming firms. Some of those firms that I set up their uh, design libraries for are some of the largest in the country now. So it's so funny to see you know, these startups that um, have just grown over the past decades. And then uh, interface flooring, right? Uh, carpet tile, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with them. Had a unique design slash product role called Creative Services. And um, that was my, my leap from a, a design firm to a manufacturer. That's how I've spent the last half of my career is um, with different building products. Yeah, that's such an interesting evolution. And even starting your education in something completely different and having the opportunity to be an outsider and observe and learn through that through that lens. I'm just so intrigued. I'm so intrigued. So tell me a little bit more about your journey of working for product manufacturers and what those roles kind of entailed too. I guess, you know, starting out, it was a, a field design role at Interface and, and then um, with Mohawk when I first started. And what that allowed me to do was really see firms of every single shape, size, and, and doing all sorts of work across all the different segments. It was seeing how someone worked in their home, right? If they were a one or two person firm to, you know, mega firms like Skidmore or Gensler and the differences of how people worked regionally and, and what was important to them. And along the way, I just got to take in all of this behavior and understanding of how architects and designers work. And I think that's what really created this niche for me was, uh, was having that understanding. Mm -hmm. and, and I can tell you there are regional differences. Um, there are firms that are much more open and welcoming to firms where you're like, oh my God, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Imagine going into a mega firm and seeing no one talking. I've been in and those. it was like <laughs> as silent as a library. And then, you know, you go into the meeting and they, and they talk about collaboration and I'm like, what? <laughs> I, you know, the irony was not lost on me. So, and, and then the other unique opportunity was I was uh, always a passenger in a salesperson's car. So hours of drive time, listening to their conversations with manufacturing, the architect, the designer, the installers, all of the different pieces and, and understanding what those pain points were. And in my mind, it was, you know, just like this ultimate Rubik's cube of like, how can I take this? And, and you know, I love puzzles and games and how could I create something that was of value truly to make it easier for everybody. So yeah, yeah. It was, and I, it was a great experience. I love how you explain that, right? Because as you're talking about your experience, I just see how design thinking 
probably naturally came into your experience and what you were doing in your role. So even from your education at the deaf school, and you are able to sit in that and have that experience and observe, and now you moved on and you know evolved in your career and able to still have that observation role and learning how designers and architects interact and learning how they deal with a manufacturer. And in that observation, you're able to point out the different pain points to then develop a solution, right? And that's like yeah, the foundation. It's been constant layering yeah. of pain points from all different stakeholders. And, and you know, <laughs> as well as I do, you know, some sort of bastardized version of design thinking. That's truly what it was until, you know, I, I got to um, actually study it and understand what that process was. A right. Little bit so as you were moving through your career and building upon it, when did you realize that the thing that you liked a lot was design thinking? Like, how did you pinpoint that uh, doing these observations, you know, understanding mm-hmm. these pain points and creating solutions was a part of the design thinking process? There were two moments in my career that were life-changing. And the first one was meeting uh, Lee Edelcourt and Philip Fonmano of Trend Union. I don't know if you know Trend Union, but um, they're the company that like BMW hires to have an understanding of what space and people's wants and desires are going to be like 20 years out, right? They're not telling you, you know, the, the color of the year. What they will tell you is the disappearing honeybee population overlaid with this, this, and this will result in cosmetics companies wanting to develop products that have um, a stickiness to that because um, those things that we lose, we crave. As a result, these amber tones will also be very, very desirable. So what they do is they take all of these different touch points that are happening in society and, and overlay them. And then they create these really, what are the desirability of the consumer's point of view for the next few years. Totally blew my mind, sat uh, downtown New York in the School of Visual Arts Auditorium and I just, I couldn't move because I was so captivated. I've become um, a member of TransUnion. I call it, they're dear friends of mine now. I've hired them at several organizations that I've worked with just because their work is so profound and their humanistic approach. The other profound moment before I even went to design thinking school was when Tarquette hired Glenn Morrison as our CEO for North America. He opened up my mind to something called mind mapping, which is, you know, when you take a central idea and you use it as a way to build off of that idea to create this, this bigger idea and all of those aligned things. I cannot tell you what a breakthrough that was in terms of leading marketing and storytelling and allowing a lot of different types of voices all to be in the same room and have equity, right? So everybody got to participate and then we could categorize these ideas and create these really strong stories. Um, that had meaning. So those those two things happened. And then Tarquette wanted to adopt a design thinking organization globally. And they asked me to lead that for North America. And so I I was lucky enough to be sent by Tarquette to go to the uh, D school at the Paris School of Architecture. And then 
innovation training for a special program that they had set up for us at London Business School. And then one brief stint playing with Legos in a conference room in Paris, professional Legos for a day. Have you ever played with professional Legos? I have, I didn't even know it existed, but I might oh, have to look it up my, after uh, this. <laughs> you have to look into it. It's wild. You have to tell complex stories only using Legos. Mm. And you have like three to four minutes to put it together. So, you know, it's that whole rapid iteration. That's awesome. That's awesome. All of those touch points sort of really, I became a zealot and advocate. And then I had to train folks in North America. I had to lead my teams in it and, and so on and so forth. I love all of that. I love hearing all of that. And design thinking is such an important thing to me. It's something that I've you know, fell in love with when I was in undergrad studying interior design and realizing that it was a whole process that can be applied to so many things when it comes to innovation. But for anybody who's listening that might not be familiar with what design thinking is, is listening and they're like, what in the world are Chris and Nicole talking about? Chris, break down how you describe the fundamentals of design thinking. It's an iterative process of five different steps. And that is empathy or observation, right? Observing folks in in their own environment and being a blank canvas at making zero assumptions, right? You cannot come in with any biases or you think you know, or while you're watching, make assumptions. All you're doing is purely documenting in, in a very, very specific way of all the different things you see over the course of the day of different groups. And then it gets into taking that and having an understanding and defining what is the problem to be solved. So many times, especially in design, we start with, okay, we have to solve for X. You know, as well as I do, that if you are designing off of the wrong question, you are going to build the wrong outcome. Spending a lot of time and really digging deep, it's part of probably the hardest part of the process is defining um, the problem to be solved. And then um, ideation, the, you know, what ifs and the brainstorming and then prototyping, but it's rapid prototyping. It is, oh my God, I wish you could see the design center in, in Ohio that we had built with all sorts of, you know, toilet paper tubes, masking tape, just stuff. So you can actually physically build prototypes, even if it was for a service, and then testing. And you do all of this, all of these steps in a relatively short amount of time, and then it becomes circular, and then you go through it again till you refine it, until you come up with what is the overlapping of viability, desirability, and feasibility. Yes, yes. Is that a good definition? Yes, definitely. And the, the most important thing that I hope even more people grasp is that that first part where you're saying like the observation, right? And going into it with a blank slate, not coming in saying we're going to solve for X and this is what the final product is going to be, right? So really understanding people's problems is where true innovation comes from. And sometimes it even makes me think of just like the simple iPod, right? In terms of you know, Steve Jobs has created created this iPod thinking, let me put a thousand songs onto a device that could fit into my pocket and observing 
at the time people were carrying around like CD cases, you know, with all their CDs, <laughs> their Walkman. Yeah. I know I had like a baby blue Walkman that I was like super proud of. <laughs> and I didn't even realize that that could be something that could be refined in terms of design. But I love that in terms of just observing people, how they do something and then going into the whole design the thinking process. Well, and, and you know, you, you just said quite a bit because the difference between design thinking and innovation mm. is innovation process is really customer centric, where design thinking is more user centric. Right. right. And so there's a huge difference between customer centric process and a design and a, a user process. Did you know that McDonald's, the viscosity of the McDonald's milkshake was uh, through a design thinking process? Wow. No, I did not know that. So and let's talk about, is, yeah, let's talk about that. It's, it's probably one of their more popular breakfast items. A milkshake? The milkshake. Oh, and, wow. <laughs> and that is because the average morning commuter wants something to do that will be lasting a good experience over the course of being stuck in traffic. Mm. They're like, how can we sell more egg McMuffins? By using this design thinking approach, what they found was they don't need to sell more egg McMuffins. They need to make better milkshakes. Hence, that will sell more egg McMuffins. Right. I love that. I love that. And then that even breaks it down even further because they thought the problem was probably like let's create a sales strategy or a marketing campaign yeah, or something to, to go right. around the more breakfast but in in going in that with the design thinking lens they're like oh wait this wasn't the problem at all no <laughs> <laughs> i love that so you also mentioned something really important there in terms of the difference between design thinking and innovation so for you where do those things overlap and are there any differences design thinking methods support innovation teams. That's that's the overlap for me. Mm-hmm. You can have much better outcomes if you adopt a design thinking process. If you want to take a look at the more successful companies, they are using design thinking approaches to create services, right? The easiest one to think about is Uber. No right. one knew that we needed that. What what we needed were in New York, and I know you were a former New Yorker like myself, was I need a cab in the rain. I cannot get a cab or right. I, and I can't wait 40 minutes or that I want a cab on demand. Right. Um, it wasn't that we need to have more cabs. It was we needed to have a ride that was on demand. And that comes with having a user experience observation process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know what's and, funny? And innovation. Yeah, you know what's funny when it comes to Uber? There was a version of Uber that existed in Baltimore where I'm from before it ever existed. Though when I was younger, my grandmother used to go to the doctor's office and she's like, I need to call a hack. That's what she called it. And it was oh, like wow. people in your neighborhood that you would just call. <laughs> On the phone, they would get in their cars and come and pick you up and take you to <laughs> your doctor's appointment or whatever. And they weren't licensed taxi people, and I'm never going to tell the, anybody who they were. Yeah, but it was, <laughs> but a, but it was, it was a supporting community. Exactly. Of, so, of folks that had to solve a problem. Right. Exactly. So it's so interesting to see it on a larger scale and, you know, with technology and different things like that. In addition to that, I know previously we talked about how hard it is to penetrate an organization with design thinking. So, of course, there are 
these huge organizations, we talked about McDonald's and different things like that today, of how they use design thinking to approach solving problems and creating services and products. But why do you think it is hard to penetrate design thinking in an organization and what can be done to change that, if anything? Most large organizations live on a quarter to quarter basis, right? Reporting earnings. So that uh, commitment to shareholders and investors, it's hard to adopt and have that commitment to a design thinking culture when you are really living for the quarter, right? The culture, the commitment, and the revenue, I think are the roadblocks to adopting a design thinking culture. But what I think the workaround could be is to create small design thinking teams that are off the radar that you're still investing in to work with all of the other teams, but to take people out of their jobs, it's not feasible for most companies. So I think I still think you can do it. I think you just have to be clever about how you try to embed it. it and it's why you, you've seen so many startups thrive, right? Small, agile, the bigger you get, the harder it becomes to be that, that quick and agile organization uh, that aligns itself to a design thinking strategy. And then since you have also had the opportunity to work for interior product companies and also marry that design thinking into how they might be approaching, you know, product development or sales, what have you, what have you found like most captivating about marrying those two worlds together? So the interior product company and design thinking. After you've gone through all of that, it's the commercialization of the product or service that then takes on a life of its own, which means if you haven't brought sales, a sales force, people who are being compensated to sell products and, and most salespeople want the path of least resistance, no matter what the innovation is, because innovation on some level, it's new and it's scary, right? You have to bring them into the process or it's gonna be super, super difficult. A friend of mine who I know you know, Tracy Kloos, we worked on this project by understanding the A&D roadmap. And we found that most designers design after 5 p.m that they're in meetings all day long, just like you and I are typically. And that most of the specification process is happening from five o'clock on, which means salespeople aren't there. Websites only offer so much and you need information because you're on billable hours. And so uh, we started a service called Designer on Demand. And that service ran Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m where there were there was someone live on the other line that could do layouts for you and uh, get you the technical information you needed. And the service made it easy and it was a differentiating service than any other manufacturer. So how do you differentiate? One of the ways you can really break through is through service. And the only way we could do that was by having this deep understanding of when people did their work, getting the salespeople to understand that and, and talk about it as a, as a service that was going to not only grow our business, they got it. They finally got it once they heard back from their customers saying, oh my God, this was so great. I got to do everything that I needed to. And I was able to go to a kid's, my kid's soccer game 
or my son's valet recital or whatever that thing was. We made it easier for the uh, for the customer. Right. And then then the salesperson understood. Right. (laughs) That's awesome. And the fact that you guys were able to, you know, apply that design thinking, right, to create a service that differentiated your interior product company from your competitors. As we go on into the future and other interior product companies are creating innovations, whether that be products or services, designers are designing the most innovative, you know, hotels, healthcare, education, what have you, what are some of your hopes and predictions for the future of this industry? That's a great question. I'm a big believer in the process of circular design. And and I I think that's going to be super important, right? Um, Especially now that we have this hybrid work, you know, work from home, work in office sort of lifestyle, and it's going to change and it's going to continue and change and evolve. What if you're using a circular design approach that allows you to focus on repair, reuse, resell, recycle, right? As opposed to dispose. I think IKEA is a wonderful company to look at for those because they they believe in circular design. Now the products, it's a matter of taste, right? And putting it together, that's also, you know, a little bit difficult, but the idea of not having to throw away things and being able to reuse them, I, I think will have a lot of benefit. And then there is an idea that I do want to pitch to actually manufacturers and end users on how during these times we can still have culture at home through the built environment. It's a little something I'm working on. Yes, I love it. I can't wait to hear more. <laughs> So now that you are consulting other leading companies in the industry, what are some things that you're offering? And then how can people get in contact with you right now? You know, I, I'll, I'll tell you what I really interests me now. And I'd love to work with a manufacturer on focusing on what is the new sales slash customer experience for A&D because things have changed so profoundly. And we're all sort of, you know, navigating these muddy waters. And I don't know if there is a been a focus on it that really gives that ultimate experience or that is is enriching people's lives. And I know it's frustrating for manufacturers. You know, it's frustrating for designers. And so I, I'd love to spend my time working on the A&D experience for a manufacturer. I think that could be very, very interesting. You can hit me up at cdstelpen at icloud.com. And that's also my name on Instagram. Awesome. Well, Chris, this has been an amazing conversation. I've loved learning everything about your career and how your love for design thinking has started and what you hope for in the future of the industry. So thank you so much for being a guest. Well, thank you. And I hope we get to work together on something. That would be awesome. Yes, for sure. So thanks, Chris. Have a good day. All right. You too. Thanks for joining us this week on Thrive in Design. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Thrive in Design. And for more strategies on how your product company can innovate in the interior design industry, head to training.thriveanddesign.co. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode and leave us a review so we can continue to create captivating content. See you next week.